an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, three generations of one family have researched and authored seven editions of Oregon Geographic Names. I'm the high-energy person in my family anyway, so, um, I, I, you know, I can do it. I, I have no worries. I can get her done. And then, from the archives, the complicated legacy of Washington Territory's earliest governor. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. Our resident historian Felix Vanell joins us every Friday morning for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the past, present, and long-term future of the Pacific Northwest National Scenic Trail. And embarrassingly, Felix, I'm not sure if I've ever heard of this trail. <laughs> well, you're, you're probably not alone. Um, you've probably heard of the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific sure. Crest Trail. Those yeah. are very long north to south trails that thousands of hikers travel each year. And in the case of the Pacific Crest Trail... Reese Witherspoon so charmingly explored in that movie Wild a few years yes. ago. Yeah, now those trails, along with nine others, are part of something called the National Scenic Trail System uh, for a total of 11 pathways in various regions of the U.S. Now, one of those, it's a one we might not have heard of, called the Pacific Northwest National Scenic Trail. They also call it the Pacific Northwest Trail, or the PNT for short. It stretches for 1,200 miles, all the way from the Continental Divide in Montana across the Idaho Panhandle, along the northern portion of Washington, and then the Olympic Peninsula. You've got to take the ferry from Coopville to Port Townsend, uh, with the official terminus at Cape Alava out on the Washington coast. Now, the idea of a cross-country path like this can be traced to the Appalachian Trail, which was first conceived back in 1921 and became something of a model. And so the history of the trail here in the Pacific Northwest goes back to the 1960s. There was a federal study in a report called Trails for America. Congress passed the National Trail System Act of 1968, it recognized those earlier trails and called for creation of more. So the late author and outdoorsman Harvey Manning gets some of the credit for the PNT because a joke he made about hiking from the Cascades to the Pacific Ocean inspired a guy named Ron Strickland to map out a route from the Continental Divide to the ocean. That was way back in 1970. But Strickland's idea really caught on. It was embraced by the hiking community and backpacking magazines. He formed a nonprofit called the Pacific Northwest Trail Association in 1977. But it wasn't until 2009 that the Pacific Northwest Trail was officially designated a National Scenic Trail. Now, the director of the nonprofit, still around, the Pacific Northwest Trail Association, a guy named Jeff Kish, he shared this history with me and gave me some great photographs that we have in my Northwest. His group advocates for the trail and coordinates access agreements, and they're sort of there kind of working with all these different agencies to make sure the trail gets completed to the degree that it needs to be completed. That's going to take decades. I mean, even the Appalachian Trail, you know, 1921, 100 years ago, they just secured the final piece of property for that trail in 2014. So these are long-term, long-term efforts that take years, decades, sometimes a century to complete. And because the Pacific Northwest Trail is relatively new, it doesn't see the huge numbers of what they call thru-hikers. Those are people who hike the whole route. It takes a couple months to do that. Maybe 65 to 70 people do that every year so far. Those other trails, like the Appalachian and the Pacific Crest, see more like 1,000 people a year. But you don't have to hike the whole thing. There's plenty of stretches of existing trails you can do as a day hike or an overnight or a couple overnights as a backpacker or a day hiker. You don't have to commit to two months. Um, now, the Forest Service is a federal agency in charge of the trail. 
though it does cross a bunch of different jurisdictions. They're working on a draft comprehensive plan. Hope to finish that sometime in 2023, and there will be all kinds of opportunities for public input. But it's just a really cool thing that is will gradually catch on, and I think um, the fact it exists and it's part of this national system is, a, is a, a feather in Washington's cap. But as far as anyone knows, there's no plans for a Reese Witherspoon film about the Pacific Northwest <laughs> Trail yet. Well, I'm looking at the Pacific Northwest Trail Association website, too, and how lucky are we to have uh, this association? I had no idea it started back in the 70s. Yeah, all these things we have, so many of these cool public trails, whether they're rail-to-trails things or particular public parks, it's because some community group or some person got together, mobilized others, and got the government's attention, and then we all, all enjoy the benefits of it here decades and decades later. So a pretty cool thing for sure. I love that. I'm going to explore more of the Pacific Northwest National Scenic Trail. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Colleen. Serving greater Seattle. Hail to the land of promise, my Ori. Oregon, my Oregon, my Ori. Again, that's the topic of our conversation with our historian, Felix Pinnell, this morning. Since the 1920s, a family in Oregon has taken it upon themselves to research and share the history of how towns, rivers, and other geographic features in the Beaver State got their names. So, Felix, you caught up with the family members taking on this historic task. Yes, and I'm brought to you by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Yeah, there's a book about Oregon I've loved most of my adult life. There's seven editions that have been published since 1928 and and 2003. It's called Oregon Geographic Names. It's all about exactly what that sounds like, but it's not some printed database. It's well-written and engaging, and parts of it are funny. Uh, the complete entry for Oceanside, Oregon is, quote, nothing could be simpler than this, unquote. And there's similar books for Washington and books about Montana and Idaho and California names, but really this Oregon book the way it's researched, the way it's written, it's pretty special in the entire country. You know, it's kind of hard to overstate. Um, Kerry Timchuk is the executive director of the Oregon Historical Society. The Oregon Geographic Names is uh, is the Bible for uh, for Oregon history fans, uh, geography fans. I mean, it is uh, just an amazing book and uh, encyclopedic in its uh, the information it presents about how each and every community, county geographic feature in Oregon got its name. It is a it's a one-of-a-kind resource uh, here in Oregon that many people use, obviously for research purposes, but a lot of people just use it just for the fun of it because it's so much fun to dive into uh, how, how something got its name. You know, in the first three editions back in the 20s, 40s, and 50s were researched and written by a guy named Louis A. MacArthur. His nickname was Tam. He didn't call himself the author. He used the term compiler. His day job was being an executive with Pacific Power and Light, which meant he traveled all over Oregon. He often took his son with him, who at 13 sometimes did the driving because Tam had had health problems. Now that son, Louis L. MacArthur, took over the book project when his father passed away in 1951. Louis MacArthur expanded it. He compiled a total of four editions, most recent one in 2003. He was actually working on a new edition when he passed away three years ago this week at the age of 101. His daughter is Mary MacArthur. This was a passion. He was very meticulous about it, too. And he was a historian. He was the, the purest historian. He, was, he would not put anything into that book that he didn't feel that he had researched to the nth degree and, and was confident that it was correct. There were some errors that did end up getting in, but 
he really, really tried to, to avoid any errors. Now, Lewis MacArthur had started to go blind in his 90s, and that's when his daughter Mary decided she would help with the next edition to keep the family tradition going. She says it's not exactly a passion project for her, but none of her siblings were interested in taking over. I asked Mary MacArthur if she ever felt any pressure to carry on with Oregon geographic names. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's it's, it's self-imposed pressure because I do feel that this is important. I do feel that this is something that needs to be current and and relevant. And, and the massive amount of work that's gone into it, I, you know, come on, step it up here. I mean, so, yes, I'm... I'm the high energy person in my family anyway, so, uh, I, I, you know, I can do it. I, I have no worries. I can get her done. Yeah, she can get her done. Um, one thing that's pretty cool is the MacArthur family goes way back in Oregon history to the big migration of 1843. That's a long time. Even before Tam MacArthur published the first book in 1928, his grandfather, James Nethsmith, he was one of the first U.S. senators from Oregon. His mother, Harriet Nethsmith MacArthur, was one of the founders of the Oregon Historical Society. And nowadays, Mary MacArthur, like her father and grandfather before her, she serves on the Oregon Geographic Names Board. That's the body that reviews names of geographic features. The Oregon connections still run deep. Just consider another member of the board, a guy named Champ Vaughn. His ancestor, you know, great-grandfather or whatever version it was, came across with James Nasmith, my grandfather. And apparently when they were crossing one of the rivers, Champ Vaughn's great-great-grandfather horse tripped or something like that he fell in and my grandfather saved his life how weird is that and so now we're both on the same oregon geographic name board together and jam says yeah i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for your ancestor so i mean it's it is that is kind of bizarre yeah and while mary macarthur may say that this isn't her passion she's obviously very proud of what her father and grandfather did and of what this book means to so many people i bet i mentioned the book in passing to someone at least once a week and i mean i'm not just pulling it out of thin air and it's always in context or something but yeah are you ever going walking through powell's or some other bookstore somewhere in oregon and you see an old edition on the shelf tell me what that feels like oh it just feels great it's just like yeah yeah it's good to see uh, but the problem is you don't see it very much anymore you know you've been some of the old editions you do but you, nothing current yeah so she is working on the eighth edition and aiming to see it published in 2023 that'll be the 95th anniversary of that first edition that her grandfather published back in 1928 I don't have every single edition of the book, but I have a lot of them. And it's neat to see how it changes over time. And, and, you know, her father really did expand it for what the grandfather did. And I, you know, maybe I'm old fashioned, but I like to think that the um, the printed version will always have relevance. This notion of a, of a, a, a unmoving, non-digital object that you can actually, you know, see the print in, in print. But this is the digital age. And Mary MacArthur also feels that a big, thick printed book isn't the only way to present this material, especially for younger audiences. Well, she's pretty sure her dad wouldn't agree. I look at the kids next door that are 18 and 19 and the book, book, (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about? So I want to make sure that this is something that, you know, that, you know, that that might spark some interest in history and that kind of thing, too. So dad would be horrified, by the way. He would, he, oh, no, 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 never do that. Yeah, Yeah. that's funny. And, And there's a particular focus on this next edition on indigenous names which are now better documented than ever before in some cases. And the Oregon legislature actually outlawed the use of the word squaw in any names, and they've had to sort of scrub those from all of the maps and everything. So, Oh, interesting. So some of the earlier editions probably have that, but the newer editions won't. Oh, absolutely. And there's other, other words, too, that you could, you could probably think of that are in some oh, of those wow. earlier names as well. 
Um, and Mary MacArthur says this eighth edition might be the final one. Um, oh. That Oregon Geographic Names Board, once they've addressed all these um, you know, offensive words, there isn't like a lot of new things being named. Um, a lot of stuff's <laughs> been named in the last 150 years or so. So yeah. it could be when this eighth edition comes out that that's, that's the last big thick book like this you'll ever need to buy. <laughs> What a cool family project, though, to have that history. I know for me, anyway, the, in Washington State, there's a website that I always refer to to help with the pronunciation yeah, of names around yeah. here. But it hasn't changed in my 17 years of broadcasting. I, I don't know who the author is of the website, but it hasn't changed. And there are some missing Washington cities and towns and all of that in there. And I would love for somebody to take over that project and get every single thing on the map in Washington on that online list because the pronunciations are so difficult. Yeah. And that here in Washington, we have a book from the 20s by Edmund Meany uh -huh. that's pretty good. But this Oregon book, I mean, it's probably the best book in the country that's just readable and entertaining and completely accurate and just a great resource in the Pacific Northwest if you care about Northwest history. Oh, my gosh. How could we not, especially with you behind it, Felix? Thank you so much for bringing this to it. I would love to see, because, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to learn how to pronounce the name correctly, but another to know where it came from and that it's it's hand you know handwritten by this family makes it even more special. Yeah, the stories are great. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, Washington Territory's first governor was a complicated figure and Civil War hero of the Union Army. In 1861, hurrah, hurrah. We don't do many Civil War segments on Seattle's Morning News, but uh, that has got to change, and it will today. Historian Felix Bennell is here. You wouldn't think that uh, Washington State had much of a role in the American Civil War. Yeah, and we didn't have much of a direct role, though a lot of people from Washington moved back and forth during the war and actually took part more than you would think. But tomorrow, September 1st, it's the 154th anniversary of the Battle of Chantilly, or what the Confederates call the Battle of Ox Hill. It took place in Fairfax County, Virginia. It's a, a few days after the Union defeat at Manassas. And Chantilly is just a few miles south of Dulles or mm -hmm. Airport, if you know right. the D.C. area. I do. So it's not exactly a pivotal battle in the war, but it's really important to Washington state history because our first territorial governor, Isaac Ingalls Stevens, he was a brigadier general in the Union Army in charge of the 79th New York Volunteers, or the Highlanders, as everybody knows, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, Stevens was from Massachusetts, but he was appointed by President Franklin Pierce to be our governor in 1853. And, you know, historians argue about Stevens' reputation, whether he was a nice guy or a bad guy, but they all agree he was very ambitious. On his way to Washington, he also picked up the gig of uh, surveying the northern route for the Transcontinental Railroad. Wow. He convinced the president to let him be the superintendent of Indian Affairs. So we really had three big jobs all so at once. So he's the guy who, who decided to send it through Snoqualmie Pass, huh? Exactly, yeah. And it took, you know, it took 30 years to get there, but back in the 1850s, it was a big deal to figure out where the good route was. And then, you know, he was our governor for four years, and he was elected twice to be our territorial representative in Congress. Again, a very ambitious guy. So the Civil War breaks out, and he joins up. He was a veteran of the Mexican War, and he was a graduate of West Point, so he had a military background. Now, a few days ago, I spoke to an expert on the Battle of Chantilly. This is a guy named Charles Morrow. He says back in 1862, General Stevens was leading about 2,000 Union men toward about 15,000 Confederate troops. Uh, the Confederates were on their way to try to encircle the army and wipe them out, but the uh, Union was trying to head back to D.C. to a garrison to recover from the defeat at Manassas. So the battle started around 4 o'clock. Around 5 p.m., there's a big thunderstorm breaking out overhead. There's utter chaos on the battlefield. Union had a, the Union Army had a flag bearer, the guy who carried the flag, yeah. which the soldiers literally followed that flag to know where they were fighting. And that guy got shot and fell down. And he dropped the flag on the battlefield. 
basically enters the battle, and he picks up the flag, and he says to his 79th New York men, Highlanders, Highlanders, follow your general. And he picks up the flag to lead his men forward, and that's when he's in the front of them, and that's when he is shot and killed. So Isaac Stevens himself picks up the flag. He, he picked, it's very dramatic. I mean, you, could almost, you, I mean, you could almost script it that way. In fact, they made a, a, like a movie about 10 years ago. Charles Murrow made a movie. Here's the dramatic version of, of uh, uh, Stevens passing away. Lieutenant, I want you to head back to the turnpike as quickly as you can. Tell whoever's there to send reinforcements because we're going in. Make it quick. Hurry, sir. Yeah! It. Highlanders, Highlanders, follow your general. It's almost like that Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it, that the volcanologist said oh, before right, he died yeah. in Mount St. Helens. That's it's right. kind of like a big a regional catchphrase. Anyway, so Stevens was head of Indian Affairs, and that's where the controversial part of his legacy exists, because he negotiated all these treaties with tribes to put them onto reservations to make way for settlers to arrive. And that a lot of people say that led to the Indian Wars of 1855 and 1856. And while most non-native Washingtonians have no idea who Stevens was, pretty much forgotten about him. Stevens County is named for him. Lake Stevens is named for him. But there's no statues or monuments. Anyway, it's pretty different for Native Americans. And I talked to David Nicandri, who used to run the State Historical Society. And this is what he says about General Stevens. And what's even more interesting is that when you're talking with Native people, it's as if Isaac Stevens has just left the room. White people, I'll call them that. I tend to think of the, the, the 1850s as being this long, distant period. Not quite back to the age of the dinosaurs, but halfway there, maybe. But with Native people, Stevens and his acts are like only yesterday. Hmm. So but, he still informs how Native Americans live today. In fact, I said, go ahead. Yeah. Didn't, didn't he, wasn't he there when uh, Chief South gave his famous speech? Yeah, and he, when he, he um, presided over these tribal councils in Walla Walla up at uh, Muckleteo for the Treaty of Point Elliot, where they actually sort of, it was kind of a, a ham-handed negotiation process to get the Native Americans essentially to move out of the way. Right. And uh, what Nicandri said about the, the, the treaties being really real and Stevens being there for most Native Americans nowadays, I talked to Leonard Forsman. He's the chair of the Suquamish tribe, and he described what, what the treaties mean to them and what Stevens means to them nowadays. Yeah, we're pretty familiar with Article 5. It's further secured to set Indians, you know, that whole thing. I know parts of it. I wouldn't know the whole thing inside and out. But then also the description of our reservation, two sections of land surrounding the bite at Nishkum. we very familiar with that. In some ways, these documents, which were very contested at the time, are the foundational, like the birth certificates for these tribes that they use now in their constant negotiations with the federal government. Kind yeah. of a weird, odd sort of uh, mix of good and bad. So is Stevens a good memory for the for the tribes or a bad memory? You know, that I talked to Leonard about that. He said it's not a personal thing anymore. And the, the, I think the, the bad feelings about the, about the treaties, it's sort of long in the past, and now they're just used every day to inform how they interact with the federal government. I read an article which uh, pointed out that Isaac Stevens was uh, quite a short man and that yeah. as Chief Self was giving that speech, the chief sort of put his hand on his head. <laughs> 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 Stevens would be his, <laughs> just to be clear. He apparently had a very normal-sized torso, but very short yeah. legs. He was probably about five feet tall, I think. Not that there's anything wrong with yeah. that. No, not at all, of course. <laughs> Historian Felix Bunnell. Thank you, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. Follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. And please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Things are swinging in Seattle.